0: the parables in the Gospel of Luke. And so we'll pick up with what I think is the premier parable this evening, and that is the parable of the soils, or as some would prefer, the parable of the sower. You can take your pick on that. Last week I introduced the topic of the kingdom of God as being the visible expression of God's eternal and visible will. We hear a lot about the kingdom of God. We hear a lot about the Trinity. We hear a lot about incarnation and so on. And sometimes these are terms that, that we um, we kind of know them, but we can't really define them adequately. We recognize the terms, but we really don't have a good handle on it. And so what I wanted to do last week, and just by way of quick introduction and review this week, is to get before us the idea of the kingdom of God. There is a sense in which God has reigned as sovereign from from eternity past, and will do so to eternity future. It's a kingdom that is without end. It is eternal and everlasting because God is eternal and everlasting. But this particular kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated with His first coming and will consummate at His second coming, has been termed um, a subset of that kingdom. It is the earthly, visible expression of the kingdom of God. God promised to set up a kingdom repeatedly in promises of the Old Testament. And he promised to do that in one who would be uniquely anointed to rule and to reign. There are three Old Testament offices which God instituted as pictures of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, he gave the ministry of the prophet, one who comes to declare the will and the way of God concerning salvation. He instituted the the office of the priest, one who would represent the people before God and would represent God before the people. The priest was anointed to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And the priest was anointed to to make intercession in the very presence of God on behalf of the people. You're probably familiar with uh, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 goes into a lot of detail about that. And our Lord uniquely fulfilled that ministry. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, screaming guilt, guilt, guilt. And Christ came in to make atonement and to cover that. And the Old Testament office of priesthood foreshadowed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then God raised up kings to rule and to govern. And uh, perhaps the greatest king in the Old Testament is David, a forerunner, a type of him who would come and of whose kingdom there would be no end and no limits. Those three offices looked forward to and anticipated the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, both His person and His work. We're looking at that aspect of the kingdom of God and Christ as King. When Jesus came and began to minister, He did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at that last week and His message came with power. And He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom the message of the gospel. He had been uniquely anointed by God to do that with a fullness of the Holy Spirit. And we considered some of that last week. The kingdom came with Jesus as a worldwide relational reality, existing wherever the lordship of Christ is acknowledged through faith and repentance. You and I enter this kingdom not by natural birth. We do not enter this kingdom by perfect church attendance or anywhere near that. Uh, we enter this kingdom by supernatural birth. We are born again by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit gives us a new heart, and we have eyes to see and a heart to believe and to lay hold of Christ as He is freely offered to us in the Gospel. We looked at all of that last week. We considered a little bit about the nature of this kingdom that our Lord Jesus came to set up and inaugurate. It's a supernatural kingdom. It's not limited by... Uh, earthly limitations, it's not earthly in character, it's not earthly in means, it is a supernatural kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, that is, it is of the heart. You may recall Jesus standing before Pilate in John 18, and uh, he, Pilate says, you're a king. And Jesus says, you rightly say that I am, but my kingdom is not of this world, it is from above. Jesus was talking about the spiritual kingdom. It's not advanced through drawn swords, as Peter drew his in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not advanced through conquering capitals. It's advanced through subduing hearts, through the message and the ministry of the gospel. It is indeed a spiritual kingdom. Christ rules as mediator over uh, redeemed humanity. A humanity that He's ruling and governing by His Word and by His Spirit. It's an everlasting kingdom. I read recently that there have been 21 major civilizations since recorded history. I'll just illustrate five. Egypt. You remember studying Egypt way back when? What about Greece? What about Persia, which is now modern-day Iraq? What about Babylon, which... um, Uh, Pardon me, Persia is Iran and Babylon is Iraq. What about the Roman Empire and its vast reaches? Where are those empires today? Daniel interprets a vision for Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this stone pulverizing the kingdoms of this world and filling the earth and becoming like a great mountain. And Daniel interprets that as a kingdom that God would set up in the latter days, in the days of the Roman Empire. And it said of that kingdom that it would have no end. It would consume the kingdoms of this world. Beloved, it's an everlasting kingdom because its king rules and reigns forever. It's a contemporary kingdom. It's present now. But we await a coming fullness that takes our breath away. We await the coming fullness when we behold the king of kings and the Lord of lords and all of his glory. One of my, um, I suppose, claims to very minor fame would be shaking hands with a president when I was about nine or ten years old. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was coming through in a whirlwind tour. Murfreesboro Road, the motorcade stops, and he gets out and begins to shake hands with the crowd. And I'm a nine or ten-year-old boy And he shook my hand. Yes, that's right. I shook the hands of a sitting president. And you'll be happy to know that I've never washed that hand since. (laughs) Now that may give you pause this evening if you greet me uh, warmly with an extended hand. But, you know, you may have seen famous people. You may have a collection of autographs. But nothing compares to someday standing in the regal presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and beholding Him in His unrivaled glory. We await a coming fullness, but the kingdom is present now. It's a dynamic kingdom set up to rule and reign in our hearts even as we speak. I like what John Stott said. He said it's a fully human life lived under the divine rule of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We considered some of these things last week, just getting the concept and the idea of the kingdom before us. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus, give you the context, has inaugurated His ministry. Tremendous things are happening. He's demonstrating the message of the kingdom not only in word but also in deed form. Unprecedented things are happening. Blind eyes are having sight restored. Those who've never heard, their ears are suddenly opened and they're able to hear. Those whose tongues had never framed a word are now liberated and their tongues are loosed to praise and worship God and declare His glory and His greatness. Even on several occasions in the Gospels, the dead are raised to life. Someone asked me one time, why did I become a Presbyterian? And it's because the dead will be raised first. That's a joke if you're a Presbyterian. <laughs> Uh, How many of you are Presbyterian? Come on, let's see those hands. So am I. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister. But I will not tell that joke here again. Um, Based on that rather chilly reception. Um, Jesus began to do phenomenal things and he did that to declare the power of the kingdom. He was pulling back the veil, if you will, to show the power and the glory of a kingdom that would someday be consummated. In Luke chapter 8, this crowd has gathered and Jesus begins to speak to them and He begins to address them and He uses uh, parables to do so. Short, picturesque images or stories that contain important truths concerning the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 8 verse 10, these stories reveal what Jesus calls the mysteries of the kingdom of God. You know, one of my favorite movie genres is mysteries, the kind that keep you thinking throughout with the twists and the turns. But this uh, this idea of mysteries here is uh, is not at all like that. It simply means a truth that would not be known unless God unveils it to our understanding. It's not something that can't be discovered. It's just something that we would not know unless God chose to reveal the truth to us. So I want you to understand, as well as I'm able to communicate it to you this evening with the Lord's help, that in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus speaks this parable, He is really giving tremendous insights into the advance of and the message concerning the kingdom of God. And He chooses to do so in parabolic form. He chooses to reveal the mysteries through means of parables, vehicles of spiritual revelation from God that teach primarily one main lesson. I think in a real way, these parables stand on the hinge of redemptive history. What had been shadow in the Old Testament, Jesus is swinging open the door to reveal light. What had been promise in the Old Testament, Jesus is swinging open the door to fulfillment. And would you join with me in following along in the reading of God's Word this evening, beginning in Luke chapter 8 and picking up in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 18. And I seem to have misplaced my watch. It's on that chair. Sugar, would you... This is not Sugar. This is Gail. This is Sugar. <laughs> That's okay. I want to make sure we're all clear about that. Um Uh, Luke uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 18, this is indeed the Word of God. Now it came to pass afterward that He, Jesus, went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with Him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture." And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see, And hearing, they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now, the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they've heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. I'm going to stop there rather than read through verse 18. The parables, as we go through this summer... The parables are means by which Jesus is going to reveal basically three things about the kingdom of God. He's going to reveal something about the nature of the kingdom of God. He's going to reveal something about the marks of those who are citizens of the kingdom. That'll be when we get to the Good Samaritan and find that as citizens of the kingdom, we're to have a merciful orientation. And then the third thing that Jesus is going to talk about, we'll get there in Luke 19, is about the consummation of the kingdom When he comes back in incredible power and great glory to end all things and bring all things to their appointed end. I believe this parable, the parable of the sower or the soils, is the king of all parables. And many of the parables, if not all the parables, teach one main primary lesson. And I want to tell you on the front end what I think the lesson is here in this parable. Jesus is teaching His disciples then and now the timeless response to the message of the gospel with unerring accuracy. Jesus is predicting how people will respond to the message of forgiveness of sins. And basically, He's going to say, there are four responses to the message that I'm going to proclaim. To work through this passage, here's what I'd like to do. First of all, I'd like to address the subject of the sower. Clearly, in this immediate context, the sower is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've probably heard Dr. Young say this, or I've said this many times. I may have already said it here. But every text without a context becomes a pretext. It's important that every scripture be located in the historical context. Historically speaking, this parable is immediately applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that a great crowd had gathered in about verse 3 and 4. He had been preaching and proclaiming the gospel. He had been doing the work and the ministry of the gospel and crowds had gathered. Matthew 13, a parallel text of this, says that Jesus was actually seated in a boat when He delivered this parable. And the multitudes and the crowds, perhaps thousands and thousands and thousands of people, have gathered on the shore of Galilee... And they're hearing Jesus speak this parable. And they don't understand it. They don't get it. And the disciples go to Jesus and they say, What is this parable? What does this mean? And Jesus says, The sower sows the word of God. And the immediate application is to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This parable, if you will, is Jesus interpreting His own ministry. He's been out proclaiming and doing the work of the Lord, been sharing and demonstrating the gospel, and it's immediately applied to him. But, beloved, I don't believe the parable is exhausted there because I believe there's a sense in which the apostles, his disciples, those uh, early foundation stones of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who after Pentecost would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and continue the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, What began in Acts 1 in Jerusalem, in an upper room, in a prayer meeting for ten days, which continued in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up and said, this is the Christ, this is Israel's Messiah, and 3,000 people came to faith, continues all the way through the book of Acts, until you find Paul at the seat, in the seat of power in Rome. Acts chapter 28, verse 31, I believe preaching the kingdom of God to the palace guard in Rome. The gospel filled the Roman Empire by the end of the book of Acts. They were sowing the seed of the word of God. A remarkable summary statement of the early church's ministry is found repeatedly in the book of Acts. And that is, it's summarized by saying that the word of God grew and prevailed mightily. It was said of the church at Jerusalem that they had filled Jerusalem in Acts 6 with the message of the gospel. And the gospel went beyond Jerusalem to Samaria. It went to the Gentiles. It ended up in the palace at Rome with Paul in chains proclaiming the message of the gospel to the very household of Nero. They sowed widely, successfully in the power of God's Spirit the Word of God, the message of the Gospel. But listen, I don't think the message or the meaning of the parable is exhausted with Jesus. I don't think it's exhausted with the disciples. I think there is a sense in which every believer and every generation sows the seed of the Word of God. I think there's a sense in which George Whitfield, standing in the moor fields in England in the 18th century, proclaiming the message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the coal miners' faces running white with tears as they hear that there is a Savior of sinners and His name is Jesus is the continuation of sowing the seed. But I don't think all the centuries before us have exhausted the meaning, meaning of the parable. I think there's a sense in which Grace Evan stands in a long stream of gospel sowers. Think of the reach of Grace Venture. How far does the gospel go through the ministry of Grace Venture? How far does the gospel go through global missions? How far does the gospel is the gospel broadcasted through community awareness? A number of weeks ago, I like a number of you stood in a tent at the Memphis Union Mission, and I heard our very own Jeff Simons give as clear a gospel presentation as I have ever heard, and I heard an invitation given: Come. And trust in Jesus, the friend of sinners. And I saw people go forward. And there are 11 who professed faith in Jesus Christ that evening. Sowing the seed continues. There is um, about 80 junior high students on a trip up in East Tennessee, Fall Creek Falls. And undoubtedly the seed of the gospel is being sown into young, and I pray by the Spirit's prompting and doing, Responsive hearts this week. Later this month, there will be a senior high trip that will go to Destin, Florida. Apologetics on the beach. And I pray and I know that the gospel will be broadcast on the beach in Destin and in the hotel rooms. And uh, that the gospel, I pray with God's help, will yield much fruit. Now, I don't think the meaning is exhausted with Jesus. I don't think it's exhausted in the first century. I don't think the believers who've gone before us have exhausted the meaning, the full impact of this. I think grace stands in a long line of the Lord's people who continue to sow the seeds of the gospel. But it's not just grace as a whole. It's you and me as individual believers. It's a, a Keith Morris. I hope I'm not embarrassing you, Keith. Um, you can arrest me afterwards if I am. Uh, in case you don't know, Keith is a, a policeman in the, uh, the Memphis City Police. Uh, the seed of the gospel uh, being sown through, um, through those means. His wife is a nurse in the Methodist system. Um, wherever you are, the neighborhood that you're in. Melinda and I have just moved into uh, Pembroke in uh, Um And I hope with the Lord's help that we'll be able to sow the seeds of the gospel in that neighborhood as well. No, the gospel continues. And Jesus in this parable is saying that the seed is the word of God in verse 10. The seed is the Word of God. It's not just the message that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness, although that's a part of it. Uh, Paul, when he went to plant a church at Ephesus, he said to the, the elders there, I didn't cease declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's all of the Bible which finds its center in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sower. That's the nature of the parable is that the sowing continues. Secondly, The seed. I've already hit upon it, the Word of God. Verse 10 in the parable says, The sower sows the seed, and the seed is the Word of God. Why the Word of God? Because the Word of God is the mind and will of God concerning salvation. Uh, I love what the Bible says about itself. And those of you who are in the Sunday school class, chapter 2 on Sunday morning, uh, may uh, recall that recently um, when I alluded to the Word of God, I made reference to things like this. Uh, Jeremiah 23, the Bible says of itself that it's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's like a fire that consumes the chaff of our heart. The Word of God in Hebrews 4 is like a like a sharp sword that pierces to the very marrow and joints of our being. And it exposes even the very intents of our hearts. The seed is the Word of God. Our very own pastor, Sunday after Sunday, stands and reads the Word of God. He preaches the Word of God. And at the conclusion of the text, what does Dr. Young say? The grass withers. Let's all say that together. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever or abides forever. Depends on your translation. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 1. When he says that you and I have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. At some point in your life, dear friend, the Gospel came, the Word of God came. And it came with convincing, converting power. And you were brought to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, frankly, on the basis of this parable and many other references in the Scripture, I think it's so dangerous to tamper with the message. To tamper with the message. All Scripture, given of inspiration of God, all of Scripture is profitable for correction, reproof, rebuke, exhortation, and so on. We can't tamper with the message because the message is what God has given us. Occasionally, uh, Jim Umloff leads us in an old hymn set to a wonderful new melody, Jesus Saves. You're familiar with the hymn. We've heard the joyful sound, Jesus Saves, Jesus Saves... Spread the news all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That's the very message of the Word of God, is that we have a Savior. What about the soils? The sower, that's you and me. That's everyone who names the name of the Lord. The message is the Word of God, communicated both in word and deed. What about the soils? I think just very quickly, this is where the real message, this is where the real meaning of the parable turns There are two, basically two responses recorded in Jesus' parable. One is unbelieving, unsaving, and the other is believing. One response basically rejects Christ, and the other response receives and rests upon Christ as He's offered freely in the gospel. If you uh, will follow with me in the parable here for just a minute the responses are divided into two categories designated as soils. There is, Jesus says, that the seed falls upon bad soil. And some of that soil he describes as as being like a a path um, along an area where you would uh, sow your seed. First century Palestine, they would grab a handful of seed from a, a basket and they would throw it like this in a field. And uh, fields would be separated by a path, uh, which would be beaten down by traffic. And as the sower sowed the seed, some of the seed fell on that path. And Jesus, this is only uh, one of two parables that Jesus himself interprets. And Jesus says that some of that seed falls along the path. And there's no response to it at all, because it falls upon hard, impervious soil And the birds come immediately and gather or snatch the seed. And Jesus interprets this as being one condition of the human heart. It's impervious to spiritual things. There's no faculty. There's no interest in spiritual things at all. And they may hear the message of the gospel, but there's no interest in it at all. Jesus says the second response is like when seed is thrown on very shallow soil. It's not that this soil has stones in it. It's that the soil is very shallow and underneath that soil is a rocky ledge. And so the seed germinates and bears fruit. But when the sun is up, the fruit withers and dies because there's no root. Maybe this is indicative of an emotional response to the gospel, a brief enthusiastic response to the gospel. When Jesus interprets the parable, He says that when persecution arises... For the word's sake, they immediately stumble and fall away. Have you ever known people within your circle of influence or acquaintance or friends or family who seemingly made a response to the gospel, who seemingly received Christ, and then in a matter of time they fell away? What about the third category? That's those that are described as being thorns. The soil is choked with thorns. And the sower sows the seed and it falls into thorns that are in the surrounding area. And there's not much of a response here either. And why is that? Because the thorns choke out the life of the soil. And you know what Jesus defines the thorns as being in the text? He says it's the cares of this life, the seedfulness of riches, and the desire for pleasure. Chokes out the word of God see, the message of the gospel comes and and it's not about easy believism. It's not about adding Jesus to an already overcrowded, busy, hectic lifestyle. We could turn the chapter in Luke chapter 9 and Jesus in another context is going to say, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to take up the cross, deny yourself, and the Greek word for deny there means utterly and completely deny yourself and follow me. That's a tough message, isn't it? And when the message falls among people who are preoccupied with earthly things, who are preoccupied with economic issues, when the message of the gospel falls among people who who are preoccupied about pleasure and riches and wealth and comfort and security, their interest is on those things and not on things eternal. And Jesus says there's not a fruitful response there either. There's only one saving response that Jesus describes in this parable. And it falls in good soil and brings forth fruit. I believe it's either in Matthew 13 or in Mark chapter 4, parallel accounts of this parable, that Jesus says the, the, the good soil bears fruit with endurance. The word endurance in the original text means perseverance. Jesus is talking about those who believe persevere because the seed of the gospel is sown in good soil and it brings forth Fruit. These are the only hearers, the only respondents who bear fruit with perseverance. Well, that could pose a question, couldn't it? What category are we in? I'd assume if you're here on a Wednesday night in the middle of June, you've got to be in that fourth category. Can't be any thorns in your life if you're here on a Wednesday night in the middle of June. Um, well, what does this, what does this say to us? Let me close with a couple of thoughts, quick thoughts, if I may. First of all, I think this says that that the message of the gospel is really supreme, not the audience who receives the gospel. See, it's just the opposite of what the world would say. The message is Lord and King, not the audience who receives the gospel. Nowhere in this parable does Jesus say that the problem with the three unbelieving respondents Is because the message, there's something wrong with the message. Nowhere in this parable does Jesus comment on the delivery or the means of broadcasting the message. The parable really turns on the timeless response of people to the Word of God. Some believe and some don't. That's one important thing to take away from this text. Second thing you could take away from this text is that you and I do not make ourselves from bad soil into good soil. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're all born bad soil. As members of the fallen progeny or offspring of Adam and Eve, we are fallen and flawed people. And by nature, we have no inclination toward spiritual things. The Holy Spirit must come in and turn over the soil of a hardened heart. The Holy Spirit must come in and fertilize the soil of our lives. The Holy Spirit must come in and crush and pulverize the rock and turn over the soil so that when the message comes, we're enabled by His grace and for His glory to be able to respond and to receive the message of the gospel. Otherwise, we can't do it in our own strength or in our own ability. I think there's a third thing you could take away from this message. The message of the parable, not my message. Third thing you could take away from this is that eternal things really do matter in the end, don't they? Eternal things really do matter in the end. No man comes to the end of his life and says, Honey, I wished I'd spent more time at the office. No man comes to the end of his life and recalculates his life and things earthly. Suddenly eternity, when eternity swings into full purview, the thing that really matters is your relationship. With the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this parable, here's what I hope we could do with the Lord's help. We could examine our hearts and say, Do we see any inclination toward any of these tendencies in our lives? Is there any insensitivity to the things that make for my spiritual peace and good? Is there any overriding concern and interest in things earthly so that the Word of God is really being choked out and becoming unfruitful in my life? I think that's perhaps a very weak secondary application. Because the parable really is this. Jesus is saying in the face of a multitude, some of you will believe. Some of you will believe for a season and fall away. Some of you will not believe because you're here for the show and you're not ultimately concerned about heaven and eternity. You're preoccupied with this life and the treasures of this life. But by God's Spirit, some of you will believe. Some of you will believe. Which category am I in tonight? Do I believe by the grace of God? And have I received the message of the gospel of the saving of my soul? May it be so of all of us. May it be so of all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have deigned to reveal yourself, your nature, your character, and the way of salvation to uh, flawed and fallen people, and that you've chosen to do it through the medium or the message of the gospel. Uh, May we find great encouragement to sow the seed of the gospel, knowing that the harvest ultimately is not dependent upon our skill or acumen. It's ultimately dependent upon the Lord of the harvest. May we find great joy, great confidence, and great boldness that You have chosen to work through people like us to spread the greatest news this world has ever heard. The great good news that Jesus saves, in whose name we pray, Amen.